Nehemiah 6, verses 1 to 9. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together in Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now, come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. If you'd like to turn to that passage, to follow along with me, it's on page 401. In your pew Bibles. Well, first off, let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, yesterday, I was here at the office. Honestly, I was kind of behind on things, so I came here to write my sermon. Um, I hadn't written a word yet, <laughs> but it was a busy week. So I, I had some notes jotted down, but I had to assemble my thoughts. And one of the hardest things I've found about writing a sermon is getting started, you know, finding an intro. God has a way of providing these things, sometimes at the last minute. So I was trying to straighten up downstairs, and I was looking at those, those clothes that someone don't, is that Jonathan's nonsense down there? Okay, yeah, so I'm, I'm flipping through his shirts there on the hangers, and I found a t-shirt that said simply, I see weak people. <laughs> And I guess that's a play on the line from The Sixth Sense or whatever it was, but you know, it resonated with me, and I know it's meant to be funny. Um, but I have typically been the weak people, so I knew I couldn't wear it. It's still there if you want it. Um, I was never the toughest kid. I, I avoided fights. I rarely stood up for myself. I was scrawny, and so I, I was like a low-key, living-my-life-in-fear kind of kid. Uh, and what that sometimes meant is that I got picked on even more because they looked at me and they saw weakness. Uh, weakness, even perceived weakness, is dangerous because weakness tends to invite aggression. Um, weakness leaves you exposed to intimidation. And intimidation tends to increase your feeling of weakness. It's sort of a vicious cycle. Uh, and this is true on the playground, obviously. It's also true in world politics. I will not single out any politicians by name, but the world is actually less safe if people perceive, say, American weakness. Weakness invites further aggression. But this is also true in the kingdom of God. God's people have an enemy, right? And it means we have enemies. <laughs> and we have always faced opposition, and it comes in the form sometimes of threats, sometimes 
intimidation, sometimes antagonism, sometimes temptation, sometimes manipulation. And if you are a Christian, you've probably experienced all of the above. So how do you handle those things? How do you deal with intimidation and how do you respond to antagonism and fear? Well, as a kid, I had a few defense mechanisms. I, I could try negotiating with my tormentors. Uh, I could talk really big and hope that they left me alone because they thought I knew more than I did. Or I could run away and hide. Um, I tried all of those methods to little effect. Um, but when you try that and you're, you're failing, you can feel defeated and, and weak and fearful. And weakness and fear are really things that go hand in hand. And one of the things that this passage teaches us is that strength is the antidote to fear. If you were strong, you wouldn't be so easily intimidated. And Nehemiah is going to model that for us today. He is going to face fresh attacks, fresh temptations, intimidation, uh, because his enemies, God's enemies, uh, they look at Jerusalem and they're saying, I see weak people. In the last chapter, Nehemiah has been dealing with internal issues, right? Uh, God's people weren't treating each other very well, uh, and they weren't treating each other like family, and so he had to deal with some in-house stuff. But here in chapter 6, the threat goes external again, and the threat is coming some from familiar names. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem uh, come up here in this chapter. Now, they've been our antagonists since chapter 2, really since Nehemiah got to town. They have always been opposed to the work. They prefer a docile Jerusalem. What I mean by that is weak, undefended, and unthreatening. For the same reason, I would say, that Satan, our enemy, prefers churches that preach no gospel, have no parishioners, and make no impact. Such a church might have a soup kitchen, they might host community events and concerts and such, but such a church is essentially castrated. It presents no threat to the established order. It is weak and therefore not dangerous. Similarly, a broken down Jerusalem with no wall is no threat, and God's enemies like it that way. And these three men have threatened Jerusalem before. They had mocked and jeered the people in the beginning when the wall was still small and things were just getting started. Later, they tried threatening the entire city with violence. They tried to uh, accumulate a, a, an actual force to go against them, and yet Nehemiah has stood strong. He, he was vigilant, and now the work is nearly done. It's just the doors need setting, which is kind of a big deal and important, but yeah, okay, everything but the doors. And so the enemy tactic changes slightly, and they become a little more subtle a little more sneaky about how they go about these things. Now that the wall is nearly done, they've decided the only way to really stop this thing, maybe, is to decapitate the regime. Somehow they need to take out Nehemiah. Of course, that's a tried and true way to stop a movement, especially if the movement is centered on one charismatic personality. And Nehemiah was certainly that. You know, he's the one who's holding this project together in dark moments, and he's letting these people feast at his table, right? He's been radically uh, generous, radically vigilant. He's a tireless worker, and so the enemies understandably look and they see, well, Nehemiah's the key figure here. They don't believe in God. So Nehemiah's the spark. Take him out and this thing will die. Like my car battery in the rain last Friday, actually. Now, 
the threats in this passage, again, they, they, they come with some subtlety. Look at how this happens again here, verses 1 to 4. Uh, now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the, door, the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together in Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Okay, a couple of points. First off, again, we've known from the beginning that these guys have never been friendly. They've been opposed to this from the beginning, so why would you ever trust them with an invite like this? And not to mention the place itself. Um, we're not entirely sure where Hakafirim is, uh, we kind of know where the, the Valley of Ono is, but the, this is the suggested rendezvous point. Hakafirim is nowhere near Jerusalem. It's not even Jewish territory. It's like 27 miles away, and we're doing everything on foot, right? That's a heck of a meeting place to insist on. And besides that, the name itself, some commentators point out, is ominous, because Hakafirim is, I mean, like, again, an unknown village, but it means young lions. So the sense you get is it's a wilderness village named for the local wildlife. It would be dangerous in good times. And as for Ono, well, she broke up the Beatles, so that's not a good sign either. <laughs> I honestly don't remember what Ono means. I'd have to dig that up. So, so it seems obvious that meeting these guys privately might be a bad idea. And I've seen too many mafia movies not to know what this is all about. Like, they're going to bury him in the desert like po Joe Pesci in Casino, right? Nehemiah, meet us at the abandoned warehouse by the old cemetery, you know, behind the railroad tracks. You know, oh, that sounds safe. Great idea, right? Why do they even try this tactic? Well, the sense you get is that they must have insinuated something quite different. And perhaps they were offering a peace treaty of sorts. Perhaps they were offering a chance to make things right and to bury the hatchet. Like maybe it's more along the lines of come to our hunting lodge and throw a few beers back and we'll call it Pax. We hear the walls looking pretty good. We'd like to be good neighbors. And, and I think it's actually, this is essentially a form of temptation to Nehemiah to, to negotiate, to go simp to the enemies because they're offering friendship. Why not come down our way? We'll come to an agreement. And besides that, Nehemiah, you're obviously better than the other Jews. You're not the same as this rabble that you're leading. Why not come hang out with some men of your own station and we can talk shop? And especially this comes to mind coming off of the picture from the last chapter where Nehemiah was feeding the common working class slobs, right? He's, he's feeding them like royalty. And I think Sam Ballad is actually tempting Nehemiah by kind of pushing on this spot that like you're acting like rabble. Why not act more like a wealthy, privileged aristocrat? Because that's really in some ways what Nehemiah is. He is wealthy. Why don't you come and join the local governor's union, the cricket club, if you will? That's the temptation. And it's kind of like a scene 
In It's a Wonderful Life, when there's a scene where Mr. Potter is frustrated, but he suddenly decides the best way to solve his problem with George Bailey is to hire him. And he brings him in, he's real nice, and he gives him an expensive cigar, and he's treating him like gold, you know, and then he offers him a job, and it's going to be like ten times what he's currently making. And of course, he's only doing this because he hates him, and he's trying to swallow up his competition, but he offers this huge pay increase, basically if George is willing to sell his soul. And George Bailey is such a generous and good man, but Potter, at one point, he mockingly describes him as playing nursemaid to a bunch of garlic eaters, he says. In other words, the poor, unsavory Italian types that live on the other end of town. And Potter tempts him with a more dignified lifestyle. You can travel to Europe, you can live large, you can be rich, you can hang out with better people. And I think that's the bait for Nehemiah. He shares his table every night with a bunch of sweaty, exhausted day laborers, right? And they may be the salt of the earth, but they sure smell like it too, right? And so a motley crew of working class farmers, perfumers, but they're not working on perfume right now, right? It's not dignified. So when Sam Ballot sends you an invite to hang out with the other governors, he's being offered a seat at the table with the local bigwigs. The invitation is itself a sort of status symbol. I think that's the bait. But it's also a threat, and Nehemiah must have seen those mafia movies too. He wasn't born yesterday. That's the one character in Princess Bride says, only a great fool would reach for what he was given. Nehemiah is not a great fool. He knows something smells funny, so he says politely, heck no. He does not come out right away and accuse them of trying to kill him, although they probably are. The actual Hebrew just says that they intended evil to him, which could be many things, I guess. But uh, saying that might come across as fear, and it might be inflammatory, and it might also indicate that Nehemiah was scared of them, and that's not the message he wants to put across. And he would never admit fear to his enemies. So that's not his stated reason. What he actually says is, I'm not coming. Why? Because I have work to do. The wall's not quite done, so how can I leave? My job is to supervise this project, and if I walk away, nothing will happen. Georgia knows this very well. What percentage, babe, would you say of the chores get done if you walk out of the house and leave me as project manager for the day? I mean, I'm going to say it's like south of 10%, right? I mean, that's pretty typical. Projects need managers who are there and invested. So even if this offer was made in good faith, Nehemiah would have to say no, because the mission's too important. Now, Sam Ballot and Geshem, not being terribly original thinkers, uh, send this message four times. And of course, the reply is always the same, because the circumstances haven't changed. But I, I think it's worth noting here that saying no can be hard to do even to an enemy. Saying no politely in diplomatic language is even harder. Doing so four times with slightly different wordings each time so that they know you actually read the letter and didn't hit copy and paste or send a form letter is even harder. And what it dawns on you is that they're really trying to wear Nehemiah down. And that would be effective against some people because they are forcing him to be rude, really. 
And that can be very hard, especially on people-pleasing types. People-pleasers are easily worn down and easily pressured into things, especially if the person is someone you're slightly intimidated by to begin with. And I don't know who of you are people-pleasers. I myself have a streak of that. But people-pleasers can be easy to seduce with peer pressure. If you badger me enough, I know that I will feel increasingly guilty for saying no, even if I do say no. For people pleasers, saying no is like exercising a very weak muscle. It's like going and trying to like lift weights with your pinkies. And this is precisely why it matters what kind of company you keep. The, the reason Proverbs and even the Apostle Paul tells us that, that bad company corrupts good character, right? And that's because most of us are bad at saying no. Uh, most of us are people pleasers, I should say, at least in some circumstances. So it matters who you hang out with. And Nehemiah knows that. So he refuses to be a people pleaser. He doesn't really care what they think. He has a job to do, and so he becomes very comfortable with saying no. A worthwhile lesson, I think, for all of us. But that leads Samballat to a new tactic, the open letter in verse 5. In the same way, Samballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear these reports. So now, come and let us take counsel together. You have to understand that most official correspondence, especially between government leaders, is going to be sealed with wax or something so that no one unauthorized can break in and read this thing. And it's kind of like today's US mail. I mean, we don't use wax, but we use lickable glue for the same principle, right? The mail is supposed to be sacrosanct. I can't open someone else's mail, even if it comes to my house again and again and again. I'm not supposed to open, I'm supposed to get into back to the postal service. So is there anything more passive-aggressive than an open letter. Sending a personal letter but leaving it unsealed so every nosy person can see it. I want you to picture this messenger here coming from Sanballat, putzing his way to Jerusalem, and he visits the local taverns on the way, stopping at hotels, whatever, and everywhere he goes, he sets the letter on the table, all nonchalant, where everyone can see it. Oh, whoops, did I drop that there? Oh, it's a private letter for Nehemiah, you know. I'm going to go to the restroom. I'll be, you know, like, this is going on the whole way. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> and so naturally it spreads like wildfire. Who does this? Who airs dirty laundry like that? Well, the unfortunate answer is most of us in this culture. Uh, social media is in many ways the open letter of our day. And people can go on there and lay, you know, level all kinds of accusations and attacks and insinuations. You can bully people. You can slander people. You can criticize your boss. You can criticize your pastor. You can criticize your parents. You know, slinging mud has never been easier than it is today. And it's not exactly anonymous, but the fact that it's public actually kind of shields you from taking responsibility because, after all, everyone's talking about it. It didn't start with me. 
And that's not to say that people never make a good point or point out serious problems, but I would argue it's usually the wrong forum. The internet is not typically conducive to gentle confrontations. It's just gossip. And similarly, open letters are intended as gossip. It is designed to be inflammatory. It's like stepping in dog dirt. It stinks and it spreads. And of course, if this is an actual accusation of real treason, this is not a biblical model, clearly. Uh, the New Testament takes a very dim view of gossip, and it's typically listed uh, with other destructive sins like jealousy and malice and anger. Um, Jesus tells us that if we have something against our brother, we should have the chutzpah, my word, not his, to bring it to him directly, privately first, without an audience. Of course, that's awkward and hard, and it is in some ways easier to attack from a distance, to gossip and to make insinuations and drop hints and start rumors, and to purposely make accusations that are intended to be overheard. Children do this a lot. There's no better way to get your sibling in trouble than to rebuke them in such a way that mom and dad can't possibly not hear you rebuking them in the other room, right? But honestly, adults aren't really any better. Everyone loves gossip. Rumors spread quicker than COVID, and that's what Sam Ballot is banking on. He might as well have posted this to Facebook. And what is the accusation? Well, it's the familiar refrain from chapter 2 that Nehemiah is starting and intending to rebel, uh, but with the added accusation that he wants to make himself a king. And Sam Ballot further claims that Nehemiah has essentially hired some prophets, preachers, to go out and spread the same message, to give a holy seal of approval to his kingship claim. And as he says, you know, Geshem agrees with me just to show you it's not just one person. Because, you know, Geshem is renowned for his honesty and trustworthiness. And yet, the lie has power. What is the power of this lie? The power is that it would not be entirely crazy, would it? The power is that it's believable. Because after all, rebellions happen all the time. Kings had to spend much of their reign in these days quashing such things. You couldn't trust everybody. And, and honestly, Nehemiah is well positioned to be a rebel if he wanted to be. He's effective, he's popular, Sam Ballot is actually taking Nehemiah's best character traits, his, his selfless, powerful, charismatic leadership, and using it as a weapon of slander against him. And it stings because the temptation could be real. Who wouldn't be tempted to have a big ego if you're in Nehemiah's place? And then has an additional perverse effect that this could have the Jews start thinking, yeah, maybe Nehemiah should become king. Who needs Artaxerxes? We can do our own thing. Declare your independence, just like the welcome signs for Pennsylvania, right? This kind of letter will undermine Nehemiah either because it's lying and getting him in trouble with the king, potentially, or it could actually encourage the bad behavior and the rebellion and the disloyalty of the people. And either way, it's a dangerous rumor. But there's a telltale sign built in here that Sam Ballot knows He's full of it. Because at the end of the letter, he demands a private meeting with Nehemiah. Come, let us take counsel together. Uh, why? 
Like, in what world would that make sense? If Sam Ballot really believes that Nehemiah is staging a rebellion, a private meeting with a rebel would be a very good way to get both of you beheaded. And maybe he's trying to insinuate, like, Nehemiah, like, oh, <clears throat> maybe we could join forces. But in any event, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The accusation and the conclusion really don't match each other. But most importantly, the charges are indeed false. Nehemiah is not claiming to be a king. He does not want the title, and he can't just respond quietly this time. Everyone's talking about it. Public accusations require a clear public response. So he writes back, and I would assume this was publicly made known in verse 8. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. Dear sir, you're nuts. Sincerely, Nehemiah. I like it. It's gutsy. Why does Sanballat do these things? I think he presents these things as a combination of temptation and threat. It's a mind game. But his ultimate purpose is no mystery, and not to Nehemiah anyway, because Nehemiah tells us right there in verse 2, they intended to do me harm, and verse 9, he says, they all wanted to frighten us. The enemy loves to keep you in fear. Fear is the easiest way to keep you in line. And you know what? It works, even in Nehemiah 6. If you look at the first part of verse 9, it says, For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. You know what the literal Hebrew says? The Hebrew says, For all of them are making us afraid. Nehemiah is basically saying, we're kind of freaking out over here. Because it is a mind game. This is psychological warfare, and it's working. Sam Ballad is actually a pretty cagey enemy. And Nehemiah and the people are suddenly afraid this wall, nice as it is, it could end up just being the death of us. It could bring a Persian army down on us, or Nehemiah could end up killed. And as long as they're frozen with fear, the work's not going to get done. Fear breeds weakness. What do they need? Well, Nehemiah has a thought. As he says in verse 9, they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Knowing what they ask God for is a good first step. And what weak and fearful people need is strength. Strength from God. The ESV has a footnote letting you know that the, the phrase, O oh God, is not in the original, but what the original actually says is, Now strengthen thou my hands. So second person, Nehemiah is clearly addressing God here, and it started to dawn on me last night that this entire book is essentially a prayer. This is like Nehemiah's prayer journal. He is keeping a detailed record of God's faithfulness to him throughout this entire journey. And it's occasionally punctuated. He occasionally just gives a glimpse of how he cries out to God in certain moments as he's recording these things. And this is another critical moment. The fear is real. 
But the God who called him to this task is not going to abandon him here at the end. He needs strength, and God will provide what he needs. Now, for the record, I'm going to say I do think this is actually one of the coolest prayers in Scripture. I mean, it's a very simple prayer. And we've probably all asked for strength at one time or another. That's a pretty frequent thing to do. But it's somehow, it's the way it's worded that has a sort of Charlton Heston quality to it or something. Strengthen my hands. Sounds a little more like I have work to do. God, get me ready to fight. Give me the physical strength to do this work even if my spirit is dragging and even if I'm afraid. Make it so that when my enemies see me, they don't see my fear, they don't see my weakness, they see a fight they never should have picked. Nehemiah doesn't ask God to make the threat go away. He asks for the strength to fight it. The antidote to fear is strength. Not bravado, not self-esteem, not a way of escape. What you need is strength. And God gives strength to his people. He strengthens hands for the battle to come. And Nehemiah asks with full confidence that God will do this thing. It is a great prayer for anyone who has ever been weak or afraid. Any of you ever been there? I certainly have. Try praying that way. I've been trying it this week ever since reading this passage. God, I'm scared. Strengthen my hands. It's a prayer without despair. So you can apply this passage in a number of ways this week as you think about how you respond to fear. Nehemiah teaches us lots of things. Part of it is that he tells you to keep working. Don't be distracted or allow interruptions. Don't be caught alone with the enemy. That's a good one. Ignore their ultimatums. Learn to say no. Respond to their charges only when appropriate and necessary. And as a connected point, don't be guilty of the charges when they bring them. But most importantly, pray for strength. And do what you're called to, whether you're scared or not. Do it scared. Pray for strength, because that's a prayer that God loves to hear and that he answers. Now, how do I know that? Not just because I read ahead. I know because even Jesus prayed such a prayer. I had to dig around for it. I I keep telling you, Nehemiah is a picture of Christ, that he foreshadows Christ. And what came to mind last night was when Jesus was in Gethsemane the night before the crucifixion, and most of the Gospels record that he prayed that night that the Father would spare him the coming trials. And then he says, not my will, but yours be done. Um, But only Luke records one little detail between a couple of his prayers. It says that as he prayed and as he's agonizing and as he's sweating blood, Luke says there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Jesus had to ask for strength. If you're scared, don't worry about it. Your heavenly father gives strength to those who ask strength to those who are scared and if Nehemiah needed strength if Jesus needed strength then maybe just maybe you need strength today so if you're scared ask God and he will equip you with everything good 
that you may do his will through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Nehemiah. We thank you that ultimately he points us forward to Christ. Lord, we confess that we are people who often live in fear. Fear is a major controlling factor for a lot of us. And even those of us who are, are better about it, Lord, we all have seasons with it. Lord, strengthen our hands. Prepare us for the fight. We don't pray that you would remove everything that scares us, Lord. Strengthen our hands for the fight. Teach us to do what you have called us to do in the midst of and through our fear. And we do pray that you would supply us with all the things we need. Strengthen our hands, Lord. This week and every week we pray in Christ's name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Praise God from whom.